this is that time of year where I ask you to prayerfully consider becoming a, a supporter of this ministry through our Sustain campaign. And I want you to know that whether you've been watching for uh, or listening for a week or a year um, or a decade, uh, we, are, we just feel so honored uh, to be able to, that you invite us into your life, to impact your life. And we feel honored that God uses us to impact your life. Um, it's a, it's a great privilege. Sometimes folks will send us emails and give us their testimony about how this ministry has impacted their life. And we thought it might be kind of fun just to include one of those testimonies uh, throughout this sustained campaign. So here's one from Kylie. Hello, Kylie, down in Texas. Um, I have never stepped foot in your church, Kylie says, but I was led to one of your messages on YouTube last year. And since then, I've been working my way through the many sermon series on your site. I cannot even begin to explain how incredibly profound the impact from these sermons has been on my life. Thank you, Woodland Hills Church, for sharing them. We're reading you down in Texas loud and clear. Kylie from Texas. Thank you, Kylie. And, and really, thank you for all of you who have sent in testimonials like that. I'd like to ask you to consider becoming a sustaining parishioner. You can do that by just going to whchurch.org sustain. whchurch.org sustain. As an expression of gratitude, we'd like to offer you one of our nifty, cool, awe-inspiring t-shirts. Every year we come up with a different style t-shirt, and it's, it's, it's really awesome. But wait, there's more. Uh, for every person who signs up as a sustainer, whether it's your first time or you're a regular at this, there's a generous family in our church that has committed to giving $50 for every person who signs up. Our goal is to reach 400 this year, and so uh, would you become one of those? And for whatever you give, there's an extra 50 that goes on top of that. One more thing, and that is uh, last week we gave some information about our Aspen Institute. This is our discipleship training program. It lasts for nine months. It, it's, it's awesome. Just go to whchurch.org Aspen. And even if you're not in a position in life where you could attend the school, you might know some people that might consider that. And so we encourage you to pass that along. God bless you guys and thank you for your support. We're in the fourth week of our series, uh, this uh, series we called Sure. Um, and uh, Dr. Gregory Boyd, our senior pastor, is going to come up here and uh, give doctor. us the, last, the fourth series installment of this. I don't no know what one you calls call me that. doctor. All right. Sorry. All right. Greg, so are you? Yeah, yeah. Hello, everybody. You look marvelous this morning. How do I look? No. <laughs> All right. Like a doctor. No, I don't. No, I don't. I look a little more like a doctor if I put these on. Uh, you know, here's the thing. Okay, so last night after the message, someone asked me, why were you taking your glasses on and off so much? You don't usually do that. You leave them on. And the reason is that these are not my glasses. <laughs> I had three pairs of glasses, and I've managed to lose all three of them. Uh, and so I just got these from the lost and found out there. <laughs> so I, I need them to read. I need them to read. But then if I look at you right now, you don't look so good. You're all a bunch of blurry. Yeah, it's like, you guys are all fuzzy this morning. What's the deal? So, so I, I will put them on and off as needed, but I'm not, I, I'm not used to it because I, so I sometimes like poke myself in the eye and stuff. It's just really bad. So try, try, try not to be distracted by that. So we're in this series we're calling Sure because in this world there's not much you can be sure about in this pluralistic post-modern, post-Christian culture in which we live. We're asking what can we be reasonably sure of in terms of our faith and why do we believe what we believe as opposed to all the other things we could believe if we wanted to believe those things. Uh, it's kind of looking at the foundations of our faith. So it's a little bit of a different series for us. Uh, usually we're, we're teaching kind of more straightforward from the Bible. But here we're asking the question, like, why I believe in the Bible in the first place? And we'll be addressing that one next week. Um, 
And so, so it, it's not going to be as, as rooted in Scripture as, as uh, messages usually are. It's also a little bit headier than most of our series are. Uh, and <laughs> uh-huh. and, and uh, today is certainly no exception to that. In fact, today might take the cake. So, so get, activate your brains. Uh, get them thinking. Uh, we had a few people walk out of here this morning saying my head hurts, but in a good way. Uh, so so we, we, we're going to, well, you'll see. So we're asking this question here this morning. Uh, why believe in God? Why believe in God? Uh, do you see God? The answer is no. So what, maybe God's along the categories of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Uh, a nice fairy tale. Is there, are there reasons for believing in God? Um, and I'm going to be arguing that there are. Now, you might be thinking, well, gosh, you, last week you talked about why believe in Jesus. And we gave all these historical reasons for believing Jesus in the gospel story. And I think they're pretty compelling. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that, 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 that message, uh, to listen to it. Uh, because if you've got 30 minutes to share with somebody why you believe in Jesus, I would encourage you to share that material. So we dealt with why believe in Jesus last week. But you might be thinking, well, wouldn't it make more sense to first deal with God, why believe in God, and then talk about why believe in Jesus as the revelation of God? If you're thinking that, you'd, well, you're right. It would make more sense. But I forgot that we were doing this message. I preached the wrong message last week. I'm serious. I'm serious. It's like, uh, I said, first they told me last night, you're pretty smart. And I said, you don't know me very well. It's like, hang around. I'll, I'll, I'll disconvince you of that. Yeah, so see, when, I, when I gave something like this series to our youth, and in that one, it was just a five-part series, so I, I didn't include why I believe in God. Um, and so I, somehow my brain just thought I was doing the same thing here, and I forgot that I was supposed to talk about it, so I got my messages, all my stuff. I'm an idiot. So, but what difference does it make? You know, it's the same material, and, and uh, yeah, so uh, now this is why I believe in God that Jesus reveals, as we saw last week. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. So here's a, um, oh, and, and as I'm going through this, as is the case with this whole series, if you have questions or objections, please text them in uh, to this number. And uh, uh, we'll have a Q&A in two weeks, which is, I think, some of the funnest times we have around here. Uh, it's second only to our dances. You've got to make it out to that dance. Uh, that's, it's spring fling. It's going to be great. Come out and shake your booty. It's time to dance. Uh, so, uh, but the second funnest thing are the Q&As. So uh, write those out or text those in. If you don't have a texting device, you can just write them out on a piece of paper and give them to the information desk, and they'll get into the, 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 the mix that way. So they've been doing these studies on... Um, or polls on religious faith or the lack thereof in America for, it's like, since, since the Second World War. And what we found in the last, in the 70 years that they've been taking these polls uh, is that the rate of atheism, people who don't believe in God, has been pretty consistent. Uh, it never fluctuates more than one or two percentage points. And it's between five and seven percent. So on average, six percent of Americans have been atheists. With one exception, until very recently, uh, among Generation Z, they're calling in the now. Um, these are folks born 1999 and after. And I don't know what they're going to call the next generation because we just ran out of letters. But, but uh, they, the rate of atheism among teenagers now is double. All of a sudden, doubled. It's around 12 or 13 percent. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is that the atheists are being much more evangelistic now uh, with Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and things like that. And... Um, 
uh, with this post 9-11 world in which we live, uh, with terrorism happening on a regular basis, people in America and in Europe are increasingly identifying belief in God and religious faith with violence and something dangerous. And, um, and so young people want nothing to do with that, so the, the rate of atheism is, is increasing. And all likelihood, that's going to, assuming terrorism is around us to stay for a while, that association of faith and violence is going to continue um, and probably increase, which is why I am passionate about proclaiming the nonviolence of God, a God who's utterly opposed to violence. And, and amen. And I really believe that, that before too long, that's going to be the only viable conception of God out there because no one's going to want anything to do with a, with a, a God that's wrapped up in violence. But uh, and be that as it may. So I, I'm, I'm, this message here, why I believe in God, is aiming at those people who don't believe in God, whether you're young or old, the atheists in the crowd, and I hope there are some atheists in the crowd and uh, parishioners. Hello, atheists. Listen up. Uh, pay close attention. <laughs> Keep an open mind. All right. Um, but also, here's the thing. Even for people who do believe in God, whether young or old, the majority of them don't believe it profoundly. And what I, what I mean by that is it doesn't make much of a difference in their life. They believe in God when they're asked, but they don't think about it that much. Uh, they've never really owned it for themselves. For a good percentage of people who believe in God, they just sort of inherited that belief. It's just part of their normal. It's how they were raised. And so they never thought through it. They, they never really examined reasons why you believe in God as opposed to not believe in God. And, and when you just inherit a, a belief, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go very deep. It's just part of who you are. Um, but when you think through things and know the reasons for things and own it as yourself, when it's a conclusion you yourself come to, you tend to be more passionate about it. So I'm hoping that this message not only can convince atheists who are out there, but, but for others of us, it could to deepen our faith. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've believed something for a while, but all of a sudden you find evidence that's really true, and it's kind of like, whoa, it really is real. I mean, oh, and, and it's, it means something more to you now. And so I'm, I'm hoping this will help deepen the faith of some of us. And finally, I'm hoping that this can equip us to help others deepen their faith or, or come to faith if they don't already believe in God. And so um, it's, it's good for all that audience. So listen up on this. Now, there's a lot of good arguments for God's existence, in my opinion. But this morning, I'm going to share the two that I find the most compelling. Two that I find most compelling. Uh, the first one is usually called the fine-tuning argument. Though I, I, I like to call it the Goldilocks argument. You know, Goldilocks is that children's story character who breaks into a house uninvited and uh, great children's story and then he finds that there's three chairs and one's too big and one's too small but one's just right and there's three you know porridge, porridge bowl, bowls of porridge and, and one's too hot and one's too cold but one's just right and there's uh, three beds and one's too large and one's too small but one's just right. Well this is a Goldilocks argument because it's going to show that for life to exist in this universe at all a number of things had to be just right. Uh, and, and the just rightness, it looks like something that you really couldn't get just by chance. Uh, I'll launch this off of two scriptures, since it'd be wrong to have a sermon without any scripture. So, so let's read two scriptures. The heavens are telling the glory of God, it says in Psalms 19.1. And the firmament proclaims his handiwork. And this argument is a way of saying that statement is true. In Psalms it says, fools say in their heart, there is no God. And I apologize to atheists, I shouldn't have chose that verse actually now that I think about it. Uh, I'm, I'm not calling you a fool, I'm just saying what the Bible says, blame it on the Bible. But, but uh, you're going to see here that the, the reasons for believing in God are, are, are pretty persuasive. So let me do an illustration here. 
Oh, yeah. See, these are my glasses. And they're not like, I got them lost and found out there. So here, I'll put them like this. So I don't lose them again. All right. I'm a novice at this, so cut me some slack. So here. Here's a, here's a screw. This is a real screwy analogy. All right. So, ba-boom, ching. And these are two magnets. I got them at Ace Hardware for $2.45. So here's the thing. Uh, that, that screw lo- looks like, are you zooming in on this? Oh, yeah, very good. Um, oh, here, you can see it easier. That screw, it, it looks like it's just at rest. But actually, it's stable only because it's the exact same distance from both magnets, and the magnets are of equal strength. If one of the magnets was a little bit stronger than the other, or if one of the magnets was a little bit closer to the other, it wouldn't stay stable. Watch this. It would begin to, boom. It would collapse in on uh, the, the other magnet. It's kind of cool if you think about it. Let's, let's do it again. Okay. Stop, stop it. <laughs> you get the point. It only works once. Well, here's the thing. As fascinating as that, that, that illustration was, uh, it turns out, we've now learned over the last hundred years or so, that all of reality is structured like that. It, it, it's, it's, it looks stable. We, we live in a universe where there's stable things, like magnets and screws and tables and books and, and, and sermon notes and glasses. Uh, it, a lot of stable things. And there's life. And it looks like it's, it, it just is that way. You know, it's a stable thing. But it's only that way because, because it's, there are fundamental forces of nature called cosmic constants. That, are, that, that interplay with one another, interact with one another in very, very specific ways. And what we now are learning is that if those forces, one of the forces had been a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker by a fraction of a fraction, by, of a fraction then solid things like galaxies and plants and, and pl- planets and plants and people uh, and sermon notes, they, they wouldn't exist. Certainly life wouldn't exist. The, it, it, the universe needs to get it just right for galaxies to form and, and planets to form and just right for there to be life on this planet. Now, there's the number of folks, uh, the number of cosmic constants there are varies on, depends on who you read because you can package these things differently. But one source that I read says there's 47 of these fundamental forces that we know about. And there could be others because we're learning all the time. But they, they, 47 have to be perfectly balanced. Even some atheists who... Uh, scientists have, have acknowledged this. Like, here's a book. This is by Lyle Watson. And uh, it's a book called Dark Nature. And it's re- if you ever want to like, find out just how ruthless nature is, read this book. Chimpanzees, you'll never look at chimpanzees the same. Uh, it's, and and he, he, he looks at, he calls it evil in nature uh, to try to explain why there's evil among humans. And, and he's, he's a naturalist. Um, I gotta put on my glasses here. But here's what he says. He goes, our world is finely wrought and delicately balanced. And then he illustrates it by looking at a supernova. He says, all hell breaks loose in the form of a supernova. An exploding star that recycles itself, sending its matter rushing out into space, where it provides the raw material for making new stars and new star systems. But it can only do this because it, it too depends on the Goldilocks effect. That's where I plagiarized my, my, my argument from. On the, nature, on the nature of one of the fundamental forces in the universe being just right. If the weak force, what's called a weak force, weak nuclear force, were any weaker than it is, matter in the form of neutrinos would just slip quietly away into space. 
And if the weak force were any stronger, neutrinos wouldn't be able to go anywhere at all. As it is, they rush about in precisely the right way to, to create the sort of explosion that brings clouds of bright new stars into being. So he calls supernovas the reproductive system of the universe, but the universe couldn't reproduce if, uh, if, if the weak force was a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker. Um, but he doesn't explain why we happen to get it just right. It's, 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 it's quite a coincidence. Stephen Hawking said this. You've heard of Stephen Hawking, haven't you? Um, in his brief history of time. And he's an atheist. He says, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers, like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life, you think. Now, I just, I'd like to ask, who adjusted it? They don't adjust themselves. Uh, who adjusted it? But uh, maybe we just got lucky. But yeah, I'll give you four examples of these really quick. And don't worry about understanding the details of any of these. Uh, it's the general impression I'm aiming at here. So this is the Goldilocks argument. Uh, first, you've got the electromagnetic force constant. Uh, if it was slightly greater, chemical bonding would be disrupted. Elements more massive than boron would be unstable, and life chemistry would be impossible. But if it was slightly lesser, chemical bonding would be insufficient for life chemistry. And when I say slightly... I mean slightly, if it was slightly stronger or slightly weaker, to the, to the percentage point of 1 in 10 to the 40th power. One, that's 1 in 10 with 40 zeros after it. So 1 in 100 is 1%. And I want to say if it was off by 1%, although that would be impressive. We're not saying 1 in 1,000. That would be 0.01%. We're saying 1 in 10 to the 40th power percent. If it was off, if stronger or weaker by that percentage point, no life. You had to get it just right. Then here's the second one. You have the strong nuclear force constant. Uh, if it was slightly larger, no hydrogen would form, hence no life chemistry would be possible. But if it was slightly smaller, no elements heavier than hydrogen would form. Again, no life chemistry. And this also has to be balanced to the tune of about 1 in 10 to the 40th power. In fact, all these cosmic constants are roughly in that neighborhood. Some go as high as 1 in 10 to the 58th power, some as low as 1 in 10 to the 26th power, but they average out at 1 in 10 to the 40th power. Uh, just to get an idea of what that, that number is, you uh, uh, Ross says this in his book, God and the Cosmos. Just get our minds around 10 to the 40th power. If you had, uh, if you filled the United States with dimes, covered it with dimes, a wall of dimes, and then stacked on every one of those dimes, stacked dimes to the point where it would reach the moon, which is 239,000 miles away from us on average. You have a lot of dimes. Now multiply that by a billion. So you have a billion United States sized uh, fields of dimes stacked all the way to the moon. And then take one of those dimes randomly and put an X on it and throw it in the mix. And then blindfold somebody and have them randomly choose one dime. The odds of them getting the right dime would be 1 in 10 to the 40th power. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yeah, so that's... That's a, so we're talking about an infinitesimal fraction. So I, 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 uh, to get back, I think I did the third one, the, the nuclear weak force. Oh, yeah. If it, yeah, strong nuclear force. I already did that one. Let's go to number three. 
the weak nuclear force, you know, and these are the four most fundamental cosmic constants, uh, the four fundamental forces of nature, although they're trying to reduce them down to three, but you have the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, electromagnetic uh, force, and then the gravitational force. So this is the weak nuclear force. Uh, if it had been slightly larger, there'd been too much helium in the Big Bang. I'll talk about the Big Bang in a moment. Hence, stars would, be, uh, would convert too much matter into heavy elements, making life chemistry impossible. But if it had been slightly smaller, to the tune of about 1 in 10 to the 40th power, uh, too little helium would be produced from the Big Bang. Hence, stars would convert too little matter into heavy elements, making life chemistry impossible. And finally, the fourth one, uh, if it was, it, it, the gravitational force constant, if it was slightly larger, stars would be too hot and would burn too rapidly and too unevenly for life chemistry. But if it was slightly smaller, stars would be too cool to ignite nuclear fusion. Thus, many of the elements needed for life chemistry would never form. Okay, those are just four of the cosmic constants. Uh, there are 47. There's 43 others that we could talk about. And all of these had to be exactly right for, their, for life to be possible. And almost just as right for there even to be things like galaxies and planets and things of, of, of that sort. Uh, it's, 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 it's really quite incredible. Now, to, to, to feel the full force of this, understand that this is all being thought out against the background of a Big Bang cosmology. Um, the Big Bang's this. Everywhere we point our telescopes, we find that, that uh, things are receding from one another. The universe is expanding. And everywhere we point our telescopes, we find that there's this background radiation, uh, like mi microwaves, that look like the residue of a giant explosion. And so scientists, I think rationally, deduce that if, we, if, you, if you take the rate of acceleration and then reverse it, you come back to a point where about 13.6 billion years ago, they say that all the matter of the universe was, was contained in a super condensed ball about the size of a dime. Though some say a pinhead and others argue a quarter, but who's going to sweat over that? So you have this, this, this supercondensed ball of matter, and then it exploded, and that's how we get all of this. Now, if you ask the question, where'd that supercondensed dime-sized ball of matter come from? Don't know. And if you ask, why did it explode when it exploded and not earlier? It's been sitting around, presumably, from eternity. Um, there's no answer to that. One astronomer told me, you can't ask that question, which really bugged me because I just asked it. I can ask it. Where'd it come from? Can't get something from nothing. If there's something, there must have always been something. Because uh, if there ever was nothing, we'd still have nothing. So uh, where did it come from? For every effect, there's got to be a cause. What made it explode? I'm just, I'm just thinking. Uh, so that's the thing. Now, if you had a gazillion to the gazillionth number of big bangs, uh, then it wouldn't be surprising that, that one of them got it all right. And everything's perfectly balanced and life occurred. And it wouldn't be surprising that we happen to be in the lucky one, because if we were in one of the unlucky ones, well, we wouldn't be around to bemoan the fact that we're not in a lucky one. So, if there's a lucky one, well, then we'd be in it. If you had a gazillion to the gazillion of power, big bangs. But the trouble is, you don't have a gazillion to the gazillion of power. You've got one. There's one shot at this. Uh, up until the 50s, some scientists hoped that the universe was an oscillating universe, so it could be self-explanatory. Um, so they thought that you know, there's a Big Bang, and so it, it, there's a big explosion, but gravity, they thought, would eventually slow down the rate of acceleration, and then it would collapse back in on itself in a super-condensed dime again, and then explode, and so it would be kind of an accordion universe, you know, it's like, and so it goes, you know, 20 billion years here, 20 billion years there, and if, if that's been going on for all eternity, well, then one of these is going to be just right, the Goldilocks universe. But 
What we now know is that there's far, far too little matter in the universe and far too little, therefore far too little gravity to slow down, let alone reverse this acceleration. In fact, we were surprised to learn about a decade ago that the farther out you look, you know, we get these super telescopes, the farther out you look, the faster things are expanding. It's not slowing down, it's getting faster. That's why they posit dark matter which is, instead of being a, a gravitational force, it's a repulsion force. And so dark matter is causing this thing to speed up. Though you can't observe dark matter, it's a theoretical entity. So it's not going to, there's, there's no chance, and no one even now supposes, that, that you have more than one shot at this. What are the odds that, you, that, that with one shot, you're going to get it all exactly right? To multiply the odds, to find out what, the, what, what the, the percentage point would be that we could get all these 47 constants exactly right, so life could happen, you'd have to multiply 1 in 10 to the 40th power times 1 in 10 to the 40th power times 1 in 10 to the 40th power 47 times. I have no idea what that number would be, but it's almost, it's, it's almost infinite. Let me illustrate. What are the odds that I'll roll a 3? 1 in 6. One six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got a 5. Because there's a 5 and 6 chance that I won't get the 3. But so suppose I roll a three. What are the chances I'll get in a second roll? What are the chances I'll have two in a row? One in 36. Right. What are the chances I'll have it three times in a row? Yeah, which translates to 216. What are the chances I'll roll six straight threes? <laughs> One in 45,456, if memory serves me correct. That's a real small fraction. So if you go to Las Vegas and, and you're playing some game, like craps or something, where you, you, it depends on the roll of a dice, and you roll uh, six straight ones, they're going to kick you out. And you guys, are, you're, you're on it. <laughs> you, must play, you must play a lot of craps, huh? <laughs> Caught ya. <laughs> this illustration was designed to flush out the gamblers in the room. No. <laughs> and who called it craps? It's like the guy who lost at it. So... Um, so if you roll six, six straight uh, uh, ones, uh, they're going to kick you out because they're going to assume that more than chance is going on here. Uh, that dice is loaded, uh, which means an intelligent mind made that dice to be loaded to come up as ones. That'd be a reasonable conclusion. Well, now consider this. What are the odds of rolling straight, for, getting the right number on 47 constants, cosmic constants? Uh, imagine a dice. A very big dice for sure, but a dice that has 10 to the 40th power sides to it. Not six sides, but 10 to the 40th power sides. What are the odds of rolling a three or a, let's say 3,033,000 uh, 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 with one shot? The odds are, would be one in 10 to the 40th power. What are the odds that you could do that twice in a row? It'd be one in 10 to the 80th power. Or three times would be one in, one, in, uh, t one in 10 to the 160th power. And so on and so on. And you gotta do that 47 times. Roll the dice and get it exactly right. Well, you look at, if, if, if you'd conclude that there's an intelligent mind behind six ones, when you have a one in six chance each time, what is preventing you from concluding that there's an intelligent mind behind uh, rolling the dice when there's a one in 10 to the 40th power chance of getting the number right, and you gotta get it right 47 times. Folks, I, it seems to me that the reasonable conclusion is that there's a mind behind this. This isn't chance. We didn't just happen to get it right. That there is, there, there is a God behind it. There, there's a God involved in this. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, amen. It's, 
Fred Hoyle, Fred Hoyle is a scientist uh, who, who said this. I like his conclusion. A common sense interpretation of the facts, he's talking about the cosmic constants, suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. I love that. Someone's screwing around with us, as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces or no strictly forces by chance we're spending, speaking about nature. The numbers that one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Amen and amen. I think it's uh, a very... You're only out, and more and more of unbelieving scientists are taking this out, are deposit multiple universes. It's called multiverse theory. They know that we don't have a gazillion to the gazillionth power uh, 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 chances of getting it right with our Big Bang. But, so they posit that there's been a gazillion, gazillion to, to the gazillionth power other universes that had their own Big Bangs. And we happen to be in the Goldilocks universe. But there's other universes, innumerable other universes where Big Bangs have occurred. If you ask, what's the evidence for this? The answer is None. Uh, it, is, it is a Hail Mary pass if ever there was one. I mean, you talk about a leap of faith. This is, and, and even if you could posit the other universes, you still haven't explained where the dime-sized supercondensed ball came from and why it exploded when it exploded. Uh, it just strikes me as a totally unsatisfying theory. In fact, it's unfalsifiable, and in science, everything's supposed to be falsifiable. And it really helps in science if you have evidence for things. So if you've got a theory that has no evidence and is unfalsifiable, and you're a scientist, you should shut up. You shouldn't be say, talking about this because that's not a scientific thing. That's a fairy tale thing. It's a Hail Mary pass. In fact, the act of desperation is so desperate that I think it just goes to show how strong the argument for the design is, the fine tuning is. It's so strong that they're willing to go to that length to avoid it. So as for me and my household, I will believe in an intelligent designer. I got, it seems to me that it, it takes more faith, I think, to think that we, chance brought all this about than that there is a God, a creator. Amen. Amen. So that's the Goldilocks argument. The second one is not, not as heady, so you can rest a little bit. Uh, I just, you know, I, I had known about this for years, but I never really looked into it deeply. And I did this week, and it's like, man, that is strong stuff. I, I, I just, I was, I'm really impressed with it. So anyways, uh, it strengthens your belief in God. There's got to be there. He's real. We're not talking fairy tale. This is real. This is reality stuff. Okay, the second argument, I, I, I call this the anthropological argument. Um, it first came to me during that funky period of time that I've talked about before in the series where I had lost my faith at the University of Minnesota. I was a Christian for a year, went to the University of Minnesota. It took less than half a semester for me to completely lose my faith. Um, and, and I was miserable. I just totally, totally miserable. Um, you know, before I was a Christian, I'd been an atheist. I tried Eastern mysticism and all that stuff, gave up on it, was atheist. And, and I was empty. I was empty, but I, I, I wasn't miserable. I could still be a party animal. But uh, then I was a Christian for a year, and, it, and, and I, I, I lived with this conviction that there's purpose and meaning in, in all of this, and it felt so good. And then to go back to atheism just sucked. It was just... Literally, I was a section. I felt so like I was vacuous. It, it was there's no point to anything. I, I couldn't even go back to the being a party animal. I, I, I couldn't get stoned. All I could do is get more depressed. It was just that, that miserable. Um, and and it was it was well, there's no point to anything. There's no reason for anything. It, you know, there's 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 no moral values. There's no anything. So I was taking this class on Frederick Nietzsche, which wasn't helping my depression at all. <laughs> and. Uh, um, I went to the professor of this, this class, a philosophy professor, 
And, and he was always talking about social justice and improving the world and leaving the world a better place for our kids. So I said to him, how do you get motivated for that? I've lost my mojo. I, I, I'm having trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Wait, what's the point of anything? Uh, you know, how, how, do you, how, how does that work in your head? How do, how do you get motivated uh, to stay in the game and to really want to have change and to be optimistic about change? And uh, he scratched his beard for a little bit. And he says, you know, it does get better. It does get better. Uh, you, you get used to it, and, and uh, it's not as painful, and you, you don't think about it all the time. So, but when I was your age, he said, uh, I found uh, some consolation in, in his book by Albert Camus called The Myth of Sisyphus. And see, I asked him, like, How, you, you want to leave the world a better place for our kids, but, but those kids are going to die, and their kids are going to die, and their kids are going to die, and their kids are going to die, and eventually everyone's going to die, and then the sun's going to burn out and, and self-implode and suck the whole solar system in with it, and that's how it's going with every sun. So eventually we're going to, the universe is going to die this heat death, a total state of equilibrium, which is equivalent to nothingness, blackness, and that's how it's going to be for all eternity because this Big Bang thing is a one-time shot. So how do you get, get into this improving the world business and stay motivated? So he said, Albert Camus, uh, it was, I found it to be very helpful. So the, and the book is called The Myth of Sisyphus. It's, it's not sexually transmitted disease. Uh, uh, <laughs> I got a bad case of Sisyphus. Uh, although I did have a bad case of Sisyphus the next day. Uh, Sisyphus is this, this legendary Greek guy. Okay, it's, a, uh, it's mythology. I'll say more about him in a little bit. So I went out the next morning and bought The Myth of Sisyphus. And I blew off all my classes and I sat myself down in this cafe. Uh, I was very invested in this. Here's my hope. This is what I'm hoping for. And the first line caught my attention. The first line of this book, he says, really the only important philosophical question is, why shouldn't we commit suicide? It's like, you got my attention? Um, But it went downhill from there. Because here's his answer. Here's his answer is that... um, Life's absurd. Human beings are freaks of nature. We develop this self-consciousness that is, has some evolutionary advantages, but it also uh, causes us to long for things that, aren't, that can never be, uh, like meaning and purpose and things like that, uh, and, and thinking that, that we can make sense out of everything. And, uh, um, and so we are, we, we're freaks of nature. We're misfits in this universe. We're like carp that evolved out of the Sahara Desert. We flop around for a few miserable minutes, longing for water when water isn't around, and then we die. And, 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 and there's no point to anything. There's no rhyme or reason to anything. And so at one level, you could argue that you should commit suicide, but here's why you shouldn't. Because by defying the absurdity of existence, uh, precisely because it, you would think you'd commit suicide, especially if things aren't going wonderful, that by not doing that, by defying it, you're giving your life some dignity. There's this stoic uh, valor, a defiance. You're spitting into the wind. Uh, you know, you say, bring it on, bring on the absurdity. I'm not going to kill myself. And that gives your life some dignity, and you're not being a coward. And, and you're choosing it, and the choosing it is what, what gives your life meaning. And then he says, and then he goes back to Sisyphus. He, Sisyphus was this guy who was, according to the myth, uh, was in love with life, passionate about life, but then his wife killed him. Don't you hate when that happens? Uh, I think wives would kill their husbands if they have no life. But this guy was full of life, and, and yet he got murdered. So he goes to the underworld and talks to the gods of the underworld and pleads to be able to go back and avenge himself by killing his wife. Great guy here. And, and, and the gods understand that reasoning, and they say, okay, we'll allow you to go back, live one day. you got one day to do this, but then you must return here. And if you don't, you'll be condemned for all eternity to push a giant boulder up a mountain. 
And then we'll roll down the other side, and they have to push it up again. And that's, for all eternity, you're, you're going to be doing that, so you better come back. So Sisyphus goes back, and he lives one day, kills his wife, feels great about it, falls in love with life again, and refuses to go back to Hades. He wants to live one more day because he's in love with life, even though he knows what the punishment's going to be. So the gods finally manage to kill the guy. He goes to the underworld, and now he's condemned for all eternity to push a boulder up a, uh, up a mountain. And Albert Camus says, yes, his fate is cruel, uh, and, and uh, his, his choice was absurd. But surely we have to imagine Sisyphus smiling as he pushes that boulder up the mountain. And I'm thinking to myself, no. <laughs> Maybe for the first two mountains, but after 10,000, this guy's going to be, what was I thinking? God, I wasn't worth it. Um, come on. I, I thought, if this is the best that atheism has to offer me, I am in serious trouble. Uh, th th this, this doesn't make any sense. I think Sisyphus was an idiot. A total idiot. It was dumb. I, and there's no dignity in that. That's just stupid. And if the universe is without value, as Albert Kuhn admits it is, because where would value come from? You know, the, the universe is like just one giant rock. You know, it's, 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 there's no value in it. So if there's no value, where do you get dignity from? Or cowardice. The universe doesn't care whether you're, you're brave or cowardly or dignified or undignified or Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler, right? So where do you get that from? Uh, if it makes sense to commit suicide, you commit suicide. And so I, I, I was miserable. So I'm sitting in this, this cafe, finished the book around three or four in the afternoon, and I'm sitting there now even more depressed. But then a thought occurred to me. Um, why am I so miserable? How can I be so miserable? If I'm just a product of evolution, I, I'm just a natural result of natural processes working around and out I pop, how can I be so miserable with, the, with what is? Um, how do I, why is it that I'm longing for meaning and significance when there is no such thing as meaning and significance and there never has been any such thing as meaning and significance? Uh, and why... I, I have this rational brain. I'm trying to make rational sense out of things. But if this universe is just chemicals in motion, molecules bouncing off one another, I'm just a complex version of that, then, then why should I think anything's going to make any sense? If there's, no if there's no mind behind reality, there's no mind that created reality, then it's going to be inherently irrational, or at least non-rational. So my reason is out of place in this universe. So why would I think it's going to work? Yet I... Intuitively, I'm always compulsively trying to make sense out of things. How could nature evolve, evolve such a freak? And I have this deep conviction, I think most people do. You want good to overcome evil. You think that good should overcome evil. You think that love should win in the end. But why would I long for that? Where'd that come from? There's nothing in nature that corresponds to that. The universe is going to burn out and die this heat death. And, and it's going to be this black nothingness from, then, from there on. Why, if that's the truth, why is it so disappointing to, to believe that? It's like you have these longings that outrun nature. But everywhere else you look, if, 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 if there's a being, whether it's a human or an animal or insect, if it's got needs and longings, there's something in nature that meets those needs and longings. Nature doesn't produce beings that are out of sync with itself. It, it doesn't evolve beings, you wouldn't think it would evolve beings, that have longings that... It itself doesn't supply. So everyone needs air. We need to breathe, and there's air, fortunately. Wouldn't it be weird for the nature to evolve beings who need air, but there is no air? 
or, or uh, to evolve beings who have hunger, but there's no food, or who are th- perpetually thirsty, but there's no water. Water's never existed, never will exist. No, wherever there's a need, wouldn't it be weird if there's, you have sex drives and, and there's no such thing as sex? There's never been sex, never will be sex, but you have sex drive. That'd be, you talk about eternal hell. Uh, it'd be, no, it'd be, it'd be weird. So where did this longing for, for, for reason and for, for, for meaning and for morality come from? It'd be, like, it'd be like if you went down to the Amazon where it's always hot and there's a tribe down there that has no contact with the outside world. But this tribe, it turns out, they're, they're always talking about skiing, and they want to go skiing, and they even make skis for downhill skiing, and they polish them, and, and some are, they just long to go skiing. Some so much so, they, they get so frustrated, they commit suicide, because there is no skiing in life. And, uh, well, you'd have to explain that. Where do these Amazonians get the idea of skiing, let alone the longing for skiing? Uh, there's no mountains down there, there's no snow down there, and it gets cold down there, so there's not going to be any skiing down there. Why are you guys so into skiing? You have to explain that. Uh, it's no different than us. Uh, the center of our personhood, what makes us persons, is that, 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 that we, we're moral, we're rational, and we're intentional. And yet, that is utterly out of place in this universe. Because the universe is, according, if, if there's no moral being, and no intentional, rational being over it all, this universe then is irrational or non-rational. It's not moral, and there's no purpose to anything. It's not intentional. And yet, it evolved us, and the center of who we are is the opposite of that. See, if that's the case, then A, we're going to be miserable, and the best you can do is try not to think about it. And I know people who intentionally try to just shoot out their intellectual brain because uh, there's no point in it. Uh, but but it, to, to the degree that you're a thoughtful, caring person, you're going to be miserable. It's, it's empty. But B, you, can, you can't make sense out of anything. It's a bad explanation because it doesn't make sense out of, you can't make sense out of why you want things to make sense because there's no sense. Uh, you, what you, you, really, you can't make sense out of why you want to make sense, but even more profoundly, you can't make sense out of the fact that you can make sense. Does that make sense? Uh, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. See, we want things to, we want to explain things, we want things to be rational, and it turns out they are. Uh, that, that's what science is all about. You can talk to nature if you know the right language, and the language is mathematics. And, and this is what the scientific revolution is all about. And by knowing the rational structure of reality, we're able to manipulate it to our advantage. That's what gets us smartphones and other technology. So there's this rational structure to things. Where'd that come from? And now we're back to the fine-tuning argument. How is it that if this is all a non-rational process, it, it not only created me that has reason and wants to make sense out of things, but it created a world that actually has a rational structure to it that I can comprehend. This is what Einstein called the incomprehensible comprehensibility of the universe. He couldn't comprehend how he could comprehend the universe because that would seem to presuppose that it's got a rational structure to it. Science is really just a matter of talk, dialoguing with nature. In the language of mathematics. But you can't dialogue with something that is, that's, that's non-rational. It presupposes reason. That's why Einstein came to the conclusion that there must be some sort of intelligence behind this whole thing. Everything's got a rational structure to it. Um, but, but none of that makes sense if, if, if we're just a product of time and chance and if the universe just popped into existence from a big bang, from a dime-sized, super-condensed ball of who knows what and where that came from, no one knows. But see, here's the thing. If, on the other hand, there is a rational mind 
that created the universe, and a, a, an intentional, purposeful mind that created the universe, and a moral mind that created the universe. Now I can begin to understand why I am the way I am. In other words, if I'm made in God's image, as the Bible says, uh, it makes, now, I, now I, can, I fit in the universe. The ultimate reality is a super example of me, uh, a super perfection of me. And I can begin to understand why I have longings that outrun what nature gives, because I'm created by a being that is above nature. That's not just a natural, he's supernatural. So I have supernatural longings, longings that go beyond nature. And now we go back to the last week where I gave evidence, reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is the incarnation of this God. And I gave historical reasons for concluding that, that, that this gospel story is true. And now things really begin to line up. Because according to the story, God, this rational God, created us for a reason. He's a purposeful God. And he created us for a good because uh, he's a moral God. And he has got the kind of character that led him to when we were in a state of bondage, he became one of us and took on our sin on the cross and gave his life for us so that we could be in relationship with him. Jesus is the perfect revelation of that God that fine-tuned this universe and the God that created us with a purpose. And this Good News Stories tells us what that purpose is. The purpose is Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of our longings. He is the reason for everything. That's why the New Testament says that all things are from him and all things are for him and all things are to him. He is the reason for everything. He is the incarnation of the God who created everything and he's the ultimate purpose for everything. Amen. And we find our fulfillment in him. All of those longings for, me, for meaning, for reason, for good to overcome evil are fulfilled in him. There are the, a homing device that points us to him. Now I can begin to understand why I'm the way I am. I've got this, this device inside of me that's looking for something that's going to satisfy the soul. And in Jesus Christ, you find it. And the good news is that we, we find it partially here. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, but but the, the promise is that we will, in the end, be finding it fully in him. We're incorporated in him. Jesus is is God opening up his own being, opening up his own triune being to uh, envelop us in it so we become participants of the divine nature, as it says in 1 Peter. And we will, we're promised, be participating in the full and perfect love and joy and ecstasy and peace of the triune God forever and ever and ever. It will never end. It's the greatest love story ever told. Amen. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Maybe I'm having an off day, but it seems to me. That that's a little bit better ending to a story than this eternal nothingness that, 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 that science points to. Uh, now I, I'd believe the eternal nothingness if, I thought, if all the evidence pointed to it, if I had good reasons for believing that life's just a miserable, miserable burp between two eternities of nothing. Uh, I'd believe that. Because um, that, that's the story they tell. But, you know, ultimately it comes down to this. Either this thing that we're a part of right now is way more miserable than we can possibly imagine and would want to admit, or it's far more glorious than we can possibly imagine. And, and we've got all the reasons in the world to believe the second is the true one. This is a great adventure. It's a love story. Uh, it, it, it can really suck a lot now. It's a fallen world and there's a lot that's wrong and all that kind of stuff. But, but, but the future's looking very, very bright if this story is true. And we've got all the reasons in the world, historical and scientific and existential, to conclude that it is true. And if it's true, well, that, that, that changes everything. That's a new frame. That's the story we need to be living in. If this is true, the only rational response is to say, is to put all your eggs in that basket. And that's what I eventually decided to do. Did you prove beyond any shadow of possible doubt 
I'm almost tempted to say almost. Uh, but, but no, you could doubt it. But that's true of anything you're going to believe. Whatever you believe, it takes faith. I just came to the conclusion that it would take more faith to believe that this is by chance and there is no God than that this is by design and there is a God. And so I'm going to believe this one. This is the, the rational faith. And so we're going to walk in this. And the only rational response then is to make this the purpose of everything, the center of everything, the reason why you exist, the reason why you feel good about yourself. If this story is true, to, to live in this love story, this adventure, 24-7, uh, to make it the most important thing in your life, second to none. In fact, by comparison, everything else would be relatively unimportant. Put all your eggs in that basket and look to a very fortunate future. I am so glad I read that book. I, you know, I, I owe that professor a, a deal of gratitude. The book was terrible, uh, but for that reason, it worked. It worked. It's just what I needed. It's just what I needed and uh, got me thinking in the right direction and brought me back to Christ. So if, if you are uh, one who has, up to this point, been a non-believer, you don't believe in God, or you're not sure, whatever, I'd really seriously ask you to seriously consider this. Um, you know, where, where's the probability lie? Where does the rationality lie? And encourage you to consider looking into Jesus as the revelation of that, of that God, the designer of this universe. For all of us, I hope that just these kind of considerations deepen our conviction that this stuff is real. We're not playing around. This is reality. This is reality. And, and, uh, and, and to, live, to live and to think as though it was true because you believe it is true. That's the discipleship of the mind. All right. If you're here this morning and you want to check out what it is to follow Jesus, uh, what's all that about? Uh, we'll have some folks up here by the stairs at the end of the service and I encourage you to come forward and talk with these folks and they'd love to discuss with you uh, what it is to begin a, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Would you stand? And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, I encourage you to come forward. These folks would love to pray with you. All right? Don't leave her that burden on your own. I'll let some folks pray with you. So as we leave here, Believers, I'm talking to, can we do it as a people who are committed to living inside this never-ending story and living it 24-7 and loving on our neighbors the way God has loved on us? If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. God bless.